This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Psalm 19. The heavens declare, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament or the sky above, as the ESV translates it, proclaims his handiwork day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a young, uh, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Our Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the love you've shown to us in giving your word. We thank you that your word is living and powerful. Lord, let it, as Hebrews describes, let it pierce deep into our hearts this day and divide for us that which is of our own fleshly thoughts and feelings, uh, Lord, and separate that from that which is of you, that is spiritual in nature, life-giving. We praise you and thank you in Christ's mighty name. Amen. So we mentioned that the mantra today is a naturalistic one that's focused on science says kind of thing, and, and so it's gone from in my generation and, and those who are a bit older, you know, to the millions of years, a million years ago, five million years ago, ten million years ago, and has steadily climbed and climbed and climbed, and the answer for the evolutionists is just to keep adding zeros onto the end, and so it's, now it's billions of years, and, and uh, even trillions of years in the creation. Uh, all of this is a quandary, of course, because if life has taken uh, millions or even billions of years, but the universe is expanding at the rate that it's expanding, then the universe should be much bigger unless the rate of expansion has changed, um, which is pretty hard to change that rate uh, when you have no friction uh, in the universe, um, these kinds of things. So, you know, there are all kinds of quandaries that come as, as a result of the naturalist thinking. That does not mean that the uh, worldview that you and I have 
does not also have challenges. There are legitimate challenges, both theological and natural as well, to the way in which we think. And for sure, we're not going to know everything this side of eternity. You know, and and that's just the uh, the way that it is. But the naturalist says that there is that the universe is a closed system, and by that they mean that it's like putting some stuff inside a box and and leaving it in that box so that it will animate in some way that that it'll transform in some way within that box without any external influence of of atmosphere or or movement or any such thing and so uh, that is a, one of the distinguishing marks of naturalist thinking is that we're within a closed system and obviously that becomes a problem because the question then goes back one of the big philosophical questions of life is well, where did life come from and uh, and so the there are a lot of hypotheses that are put forward in that you know and they they say that the world became hot and and moisture was there and so this heat and moisture and and dirt and various different things uh, allowed the opportunity for bacteria to form and on and on it goes there are also some naturalists who don't believe in a closed system they say they do, and then when you press them on where did life come from, they say things like uh, possibly aliens uh, uh, began the life on Earth. And so, you know, that is a, a theory that they hold to, and so when you put that into other terms and say, so you mean a, an outside cause caused life to be on Earth, that sounds a little bit like you know, what I believe, because I believe that God caused life on earth. Oh, no, I'm not talking about God. I'm talking about aliens. And so um, you can see some really interesting uh, video of that online if you, if you look up uh, some of these things that naturalist, naturalists say. So... Um, so if we're not careful, though... This naturalism in our generation today begins to invade our thinking and it's one of the, the genuine and really big challenges that our young people face today because they're bombarded with it all the time. You know, How many people like to watch uh, David Attenborough's shows? You know? They're really good to watch. You just have to turn off the commentary. So that's the, that's the problem because... Every minute or two, you're going to hear these terms, millions of years and evolution and, and this uh, species, this ancient species we found in the deep water has given way to this species. And so without any, without any evidence, these are just hypotheses that are put forward. And so if we're not careful, this constant bombarding of that message be- can begin to influence us and what happens then is that we begin to lose the reality of the Christian life. Because the Christian life has this reality to it that is both natural here in this world in which we're in, where we can see and touch and feel uh, various different things, but there is the reality of the supernatural as well. And, uh, 
you know, we, we have to be careful that we don't lose the reality of the supernatural as well. And we've termed this the seen, that which we see, and the unseen, that which we can't see with the physical eye. But as we read through scripture, we can see that there are many encounters of the unseen world with the seen world. And so that's what we will move on a little bit more into today. We Last week we talked about the two chairs and uh, the we, we said that uh, the true believing Bible-believing Christian is the one who learns to live and practice in the chair of faith. They understand that they're living in this seen world right now, but they are there is a supernatural world. And uh, we're not saying that one cannot be saved uh, unless he lives in that one chair all the time. He sits in that chair of faith all the time. Because the truth is that you and I, at different stages of our life, have been in the chair of unfaith, you know, and uh, and we've been in that place where we have uh, doubted or where we have uh, maybe through wrong thinking have had wrong beliefs about spiritual things, etc., etc. None of us lives this way consistently or, or constantly in the chair of faith. A Bible-believing Christian in the fullest sense, lives in practice with this understanding that he is part of a supernatural world. So what does this mean? Well, according to the biblical view, there are these two parts to reality, the natural world and the supernatural world. The natural world is what we see and we interact with each day. We've we've heard music played and that actually has not come to you without an influence, there's, there has been a sound wave that has come to your ears by which you've heard that. And that's an en- engagement in the natural world. You're looking at things right now, seeing things. Your, your eyes are picking up light. That's an engagement with the natural world around you right now. So let's keep moving on. From the Christian viewpoint, though, we would say that no one has been more ignorant, possibly no one has been more ignorant or naive of the reality concerning the supernatural universe than the 20th and 21st century man. Now, these two chairs, the chair of faith and the chair of unfaith, these two positions cannot both be true. One is true and one is false. It's important to understand that. This is... This is the dilemma of people who grow up within Christianity and are social Christians. They've, they've been raised in a church to believe themselves to be Christians. They've been told by their parents, when you were little, we baptized you or we confirmed you. And, uh, and so you're a, a, a member of Christ's universal 
body called the church and all these kinds of things that they say and there's been no place and no time in their lives where they have come to a point of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ but they're labeling themselves a Christian saying they believe in God and yet living entirely a life of naturalistic viewpoint so this this is a dilemma because it is a contradiction of terms to say that one is a Christian and yet not believe the supernatural that scripture presents to us. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life, right from the beginning. Think back to that moment when you got saved. Think back to that time for a moment. And remember that change that occurred almost instantaneously in in so many cases where people literally bowed their knees before God and within moments everything was changed in their outlook. Some wrestled with these things for a longer period of time. But that is supernatural. It wasn't psychological. It was supernatural. So we left off last week saying if the real battle is in the heavenly places are the heavenlies a long way off and if they are a long way off therefore does not our individual part become rather unimportant Um, so we're going to consider these questions now um, I'm just going to skip on through this biblical Christians live in the reality of the supernatural and the natural world A person who denies the existence of the supernatural God is called an unbeliever. That would be right, amen? And be called an unbeliever? Is that a question, Michael, or you're stretching your own? So therefore, should we call it unfaith if a Christian does not live in the light of the supernatural now? You know, that's, that's a fair question. And... Christians will struggle between victorious faith and defeated unfaith. There are going to be battles in your Christian life, times where you struggle with the reality of living by faith and trusting the Lord in your life. Once someone has placed their trust in Jesus Christ, they're saved because they have rested their life life into his hands and he has taken up their life as they've laid down their life he has taken up their life into him and this is all on the basis of his work that he did on the cross not on the basis of their efforts or labors or religious endeavors etc etc but we still continue to live in this life in this frame you know even our own mortal body can sometimes distress us in the realm of of our faith in God because we can endure so much pain that we can begin to question does God love me why why is God allowing me to endure this pain and why am I going through this we can endure torment from others and if you read uh, books like Richard Wormbrand's book for example you see a man who suffered greatly at the hands of tormentors And if it wasn't for 
his view and understanding of the supernatural, that torture would have been, it was already inhumane, but it would have been just too much for a man to naturally bear. So, what is the truth about unfaith? Let's, let's begin to think about that other chair. Okay. The truth about unfaith is that any activity that is unfaith is in the flesh. That's what it is. It's in the flesh. No matter what that activity may be, and um, it, it doesn't matter what it is. These can be Christian works. These can be um, uh, just normal relationship uh, issues that that we live and deal with in the family. I wonder how many husbands here have become short-tempered and you, you've shouted at your wife because you're not happy with something she's, she's done, not happy with some way in which she's behaved. That is, that is a fleshly behaviour. And in that moment, you're not living in the chair of faith. You are trying by human endeavour to achieve the consequence or the result that you want because you're seeing things through your own eyes the way you want it to be. How many wives have withheld themselves from their husbands for an extended period of time as, as a way of punishing them, you know, emotionally and physically as a way of kind of punishing them until they yield themselves and come crawling. So when we are functioning in the flesh, and that's just one area that we can be in, you know, we have to think that, you know, many people say, oh, you know, I'd love to be in, in full-time ministry. Now, are you a believer in Jesus? Yes? Yeah? Any non-believers here? Let's, let's go with that way. All right. Are you a believer in Jesus? Yes. You've been born again? Yes. You're in full-time ministry. You know, one of the mistakes of Christians is to think that somehow there is, there is our secular life and our spiritual life because then we start living the spiritual life in the chair of faith and the secular life in the chair of unfaith as if that somehow has no bearing on the rest of our lives. But probably your greatest areas of ministry are going to be with the unbelievers you interact with on a day-to-day basis. And that's the opportunity you have right in front of you. That's the thing to pray about daily, that God would create opportunities for you to share the gospel with people. Sometimes they get handed to you on a silver platter. I've had people ask me point blank because their lifestyle is a, is a sinful choice. And they have asked me point blank, so do you think I'm going to hell because of this lifestyle choice? I mean, put, the, put it on the golf tee there, you know. It's our job to hit it then. It's our job to not be aggressive and run that person down, but it's our job to then reason a correct response with that person 
so that they will see a right approach to the gospel message that causes them to think about the consequences of their sin. So any activity in the flesh, that's the first truth about unfaith. The second truth is any living of the Christian life is playing at spirituality if we're living in the chair of unfaith. Let that just let that sink in for a moment. If we're functioning in unfaith, if we are living in that chair of unfaith, if we are functioning out of the flesh, we live like that, um, 160, I think there's 168 hours in the week, so 165, let's say, and then the, the three hours on a Sunday morning we're going to give to spiritual things. We're just playing at spirituality. And and this is the problem with thinking secular and spiritual. This is the problem with that. When we think that way, when we think, when you think that your dinner around the table with your family is somehow not spiritual, you are wrong. When you think that turning up at work and engaging with your workmates is somehow not spiritual, you're wrong. Because when you do that, you will instantly be in a place where you're Christian witness will be lowered and then someone's going to say to you one day, I thought Christians didn't do that. I thought Christians didn't behave that way. I thought Christians didn't say those kinds of things. Schaefer illustrates this really well when he says that um, in times of war, especially in the UK in the 20th century, the First World War, the war to end all wars. <laughs> the greatest overstatement ever made, almost. And the Second World War, that while the big brothers and the dads were away at war, little boys at home played toy soldiers. They acted like soldiers and they, they um, you know, used soldiery kinds of words like attack retreat, whatever it might be, on guard, whatever it might be, but they have no contact nor any influence with the real battle being fought. Wouldn't that be great if they could move a few soldiers around on a, on a, on a game board and affect the battle? But they have no influence on it. And so one who tries to live the Christian life while living in the chair of unfaith is just playing at war and in fact has no influence, no contact with the real battle at all. That's a, that's a pretty good description, isn't it? Thirdly, if we're sitting in the chair of unfaith, we're not bringing honour to God, therefore God will not honour the weapons of of our choice. Man, if ever there was a statement 
that needed to be read over and over and over through the 80s and 90s, it's that statement right there. When Christian churches were making a giant hullabaloo about these um, supposed spiritual meetings where they were tearing down strongholds, entirely taking 2 Corinthians 10 out of context, tearing down these strongholds of principalities and powers and going up on the high place and praying over the city to take dominion over evil spirits so that revival would be poured out and all these kinds of things by the weapons of their choice. I'll tell you how revival can break out. Start praying, yes, and we we don't want to deny the enthusiasm and zeal they had for prayer. And start witnessing. Share the gospel. God has chosen that those who have not heard would hear by you and I being the avenue for the gospel. Romans makes that really clear. How shall they hear without a preacher? The answer to that question is they won't. It's, it's a rhetorical question. How will they go unless they're sent? The answer to that is they won't. And so it's not about having systems in place that we think will be the right weapons or whatever it may be. Hudson Taylor said, as we mentioned last week, the Lord's work done in the Lord's way will never fail to have the Lord's provision. So sitting in the chair of faith, trusting God and moving forward in the way that he's commanded believers to move forward... God will always be with that in the way that he determines to make provision for that. And I mentioned last week we could turn that around and we could say the Lord's work done in human energy is not the Lord's work any longer. It's something though. It is something. And this is where you and I have to be very, very careful that we're endeavouring to walk humbly and honour God as we walk so that we can be, be that instrument of the Lord's work done in the Lord's way. So we came back to those questions. If the real battle is in heavenly places, are the heavenlies a long way off? Yes or no? If they are a long way off, our individual parts become rather unimportant. But if they're not, something changes. So let's continue continue with this. First, are the heavenlies a long way off? We've mentioned the Mount of Transfiguration. And we're going to look at a couple of very interesting examples here. We saw there that a intensely spiritual situation took place physically on the earth that was a supernatural encounter on top of a mountain or on top of a mount. Those men would walk down from that mount. They were not lifted up into the heavenlies but heaven came down to that place as such. The the supernatural realm was there with them in that encounter. 
time was involved, time passed. And when they came down, it was just the beginning of steps. They, they walked their way down that hill. So the emphasis of that, or one of the things we can learn from that encounter, is that the supernatural is not far away. That does not mean that you and I are going to be brought into encounters like that. That was unique and it had a very special purpose. Consider the experience of the disciples with Christ on the road to Emmaus. It says, and their eyes were opened and they knew him. And many times we stop right there, you know, as, as Christ there, as, as the Lord opened their eyes to who he was. And then the scripture says, and he vanished out of their sight. That's a, their eyes were open, they knew him and he was gone from their sight. Luke 24, uh, that is in 31. Now, the actual better translation of that text is to say, their eyes were open and they knew him and he ceased to be seen of them. They couldn't see him anymore. Where was he? Where, he was just here. Now, uh, then in John, Christ appeared to the disciples in 19 and in verse 26, John chapter 20. This is not confined to one historic moment following the resurrection. It's the it's the structure of scripture. The, the structure of the scripture emphasizes the nearness of the supernatural in this, this event. That supernatural things were happening. And we need to remember that the supernatural is not just yesterday. And it won't just be tomorrow when Christ returns. But you and I are living near the supernatural at all times. What about in the Old Testament? Genesis 32 is a great passage and Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. That's pretty awesome. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host, God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. This word, Machanaim, means two camps. And it implies that, that there was one camp visible, which would be Jacob and his, his entourage that are with him, his people, his family and his servants and workers and various people that are with him. And then this heavenly host, this heavenly camp that was there. Two camps. Whoa. Let's call this place two camps. Two hosts, each one as real as the other. This is not an imaginary camp, an imaginary host. The first with his family, his animals and everything, and then the second with the angels who were just as valid and real, and we don't know how many. Sometimes the angels were there in great numbers. What about Elisha? What a, what a great story this is for us. Because it indicates that Elisha 
knew the presence of God there at that time. He's there. He's got his young man with him. His young man is terrified of the situation when he has looked out and seen the reality of the seen world around him. That we're, we're surrounded by the Syrians. Now, you know, that's a devastating situation because the Syrians were a powerful people, brutal to the extreme. You did not want to be captured as a foreign people by the Syrians. That, that was not good to be captured by them. If you think back to World War II and our soldiers who were um, up in uh, Borneo, the Malaysian Peninsula, and, and in uh, uh, New Guinea, running from the Japanese, the knowledge of imprisonment under the Japanese was a terrifying thing because of the brutality. My uncle was uh, captured in Ambon and spent a couple of years in a Japanese prison camp uh, and and he survived barely, but he came back and uh, was probably still a devastated man in his life for the next 60 years in so many ways because of the brutal treatment. That's... You know, in our lifetime, we've seen that brutality. We, we remember that brutality. And that is the case of the Syrians. And so Elijah says to him, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. But Elisha, look. Look out. What are you talking about? I can only see thousands of Syrian soldiers and they look angry their reputation goes before them he's terrified and so that must have seemed like an insane statement at that time for that young man to hear Elisha say those who are with us are more than them it's just you and me what are you talking about we're two, they're thousands And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. I mean, you know, this, this means the supernatural is not far away from us. But the chair of faith robs us from that. We, when we're in the chair, uh, sorry, the chair of unfaith robs us from that. When we're sitting in that chair, when we're operating and functioning from naturalistic viewpoints, we begin to neglect and forget the supernatural that is around us. We, we say when we describe the nature of God that he is omnipotent omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing. What's the third one? Omnipresent. Everywhere present at all times. But don't we live so many times like we're just in the chair of unfaith and we've forgotten about his presence with us. Elisha's prayer was not that something would come. 
His prayer was that open his eyes that he would see that which is here. What changed was not the environment, what changed was the young man's perception. He was enabled to see what Elijah, Elisha already saw. If we speak of the supernatural in more immediate terms, if we, if we think of things such as to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that, that on our death something transpires. If we think about that in those terms, then we begin to think about the more immediacy of that which is eternal and that which is spiritual. Now, for sure, when we speak of the supernatural, the naturalistic man will want to shout that down. He'll, he'll want to say, oh, you know, um, you know, as Richard Dawkins was famous for pushing him and Christopher Hitchens, whose brother is an is a evangelical, um, but for pushing this, these ideas of, oh, yes, you believe in God and I believe in the flying spaghetti monster. But of course, he said it with that eloquent English voice, so it sounds all the more convincing, you know. Yeah, maybe more pompous voice. So the, the naturalist will argue that the supernatural is not there. And this is one of the dangers of liberal theology. Liberal theology has embraced this kind of thing because the liberal theologian is scared to alien, alienate himself in the world uh, from those around him because he's scared to be seen as being a freak or an outcast. Um, I, I used to really like the song by DC Talk, Jesus Freak. It wasn't saying Jesus was a freak. It was saying, I am a Jesus freak. That's how the world sees me, so I'm going to prove it to you. Was kind of the ethos of the song. But the liberal theologian doesn't like to live that way. The liberal theologian likes people to see them as being completely at one with the world. And this is where the real battle for truth is fought in Christianity. And you and I have a duty and a calling to respond to it. This is why when it came down to the same-sex marriage debate, as I mentioned last week, this is why that became a real dividing line among Christians, is that Christians were polarised into two groups, those who would accept that and those who would not. And the reason came down to spiritual thinking, that if we accept that, we're condemning people to hell, but the, for the those who accepted it, they were going from naturalist thinking, saying, but they're born that way. There's been no evidence of that scientifically, but since the 80s, Time magazine has promoted the idea, the, the uh, born gay gene, uh, I think it was around about 1984 when that first began to hit the uh, news waves and, and media, and it's been promoted ever since, uh, despite this, there never being any evidence of it. So you and I have a duty and a calling to respond. How do we respond? 
we live in the light of these two parts of reality of the universe we're in, the seen and the unseen. The seen and the unseen. So, is our involvement unimportant? Let's look at a comment from Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 9. He says, For I think that God has set forth us the apostles last. Here's Paul's thinking. The church today, thanks to the clergy laity mentality, has turned this around. We sit in a position where where we have a hierarchical structure to churches and we, we view the clergy as being a step closer to the heavenlies. And this, this kind of idea is an idea that's been, been very strongly promoted through Catholicism, especially, where Paul is saying that as an apostle, so here are pioneers of the church, the apostles. He says, God has taken the apostles and he's put us last. He's... He's put us at the bottom because his way of thinking about leadership in the church is that leadership leads by serving. The modern church approach, or thanks to this clergy laity uh, uh, mentality that is deeply in the church, is that leadership is served. That's the way we think today. Now, there, Paul also talks about respecting those who are over us and, and um, are deferring to them and, and things like this. However, the role of leaders is to serve the body. And so Paul said, For I think that God has set, us, uh, set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were, appointed to death. So, this is what I think God's done. He's put us in a position... And our appointment is death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, the seen, and to angels and to men. If people, to the liberal theologian, they must think this kind of thing is stupid to angels. Angels aren't looking at this, you know. It's, but the word Paul uses, the word spectacle here, and don't think of spectacles, that's the wrong way of thinking. You have to think of the, the noun of to be made a spectacle. To be made a spectacle means that somebody has put you in a position where you are being made theatre of. Right? He made a spectacle of him. Some will even hear uh, commentators in sporting matches say that when one team absolutely thrashes another team, they will say they made a spectacle of them. The word for spectacle is the Greek word theatron. Does that sound like anything you know? Theatre. That is where the word theatre comes from. Theatron. So Paul says, for we are made a theatre to the world and to the angels and to men. We're made a theatre. We're on stage. 
We're being observed, Paul is saying. People are looking. And so you and I, beloved, the chair of faith and the chair of unfaith, we, we don't just get to live how we want. In the, but the reality is we do. We get to choose every day how we will live. But our choices must be tempered by this understanding that you and I are the theatre the world is looking at and the angels are looking at. Our part to play in this is important. It's being observed by the world. We are a living testimony, a living witness. We're under observation. Timothy, Paul charged Timothy, he said in chapter 5, verse 21, 1 Timothy, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Is Timothy alone? Paul's saying, no, you're being observed, Timothy. You're being watched. This is the teaching of Jesus as well. Luke 15, 10, Jesus said, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is all in the present and continuous tense. There is joy when a sinner repents. That speaks of an interplay between the supernatural and the natural, doesn't it? That the the angelic realm are watching what's taking place here and there are things that happen on this earth that causes them to rejoice. I think we could logically assume there may be things that cause them to dis- maybe not despair, but to, uh, uh, to mourn, to grieve. This is cause and effect. There is, a, there is a cause on earth that has an effect in heaven. We never think about it that way, do we? We always think about heaven being the cause and you and I then receiving the effect. But here, Jesus says, when somebody repents, heaven rejoices. That is, that's really powerful for us to think of. So therefore, the supernatural world is not a long way off and our part is not unimportant. Now, keep in mind 1 Corinthians 4 verse 9 in which we learn that we're, we are a theatre to the world and to the angels. Keep that in mind. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 4 Paul says, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive or simple, is the King James, I believe, words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. In demonstration before whom? Well, we, we, we could say clearly that this demonstration is before the lost world, before the church, We could also assume that angels were observing this as well. The word simple means is from a uh, Greek word patho, and it means to persuade. And that is part of our gospel job. 
And some people say, oh, you know, the First um, Corinthians 2 verse 4, we have to have a simple focus on the gospel. And I say yes to that. But that is does not mean... But that's taking this text out of context because Paul is saying our, our preaching was, uh, was not only with persuasive words of human wisdom, but our preaching was accompanied by a demonstration of the spirit and of power. There was a demonstration of this connection between the seen realm and the unseen realm. Little by little, the church is under constant assault in the Western world. Um, you know, some years ago, Phil and, and myself and Suzanne and a couple of others, we went over to Fiji and uh, we were evangelizing there and we all rejoiced in something. Um, and that was that you didn't have to battle with the local people about evolution for 10 or 15 minutes to get into a gospel message because they, the vast majority of the population believe in creation and believe in God. And so even though evolution is taught in the schools, the vast majority believe in God and believe in creation. And so, boy, what a, what a rejoicing for us at the end of the day, not, a, not having had to battle over that issue in, in 9 out of 10 evangelistic opportunities the battle became a different one and that was getting through the religious mentality that people had but little by little the modern Christian finds themselves in the position where their worldview is constantly being attacked and they're constantly being pressured to adopt the chair of unfaith to sit in that naturalistic worldview of things Uh, and naturalistic thought begins to crowd in and as that crowds in it it crowds out spiritual realities and young people who've been raised in church go to university and they're in university they are bombarded with uh, with naturalistic thinking and, and so so many of those young people come out uh, believing in uh, solidly in evolution uh, evolutionary theory and, and secular worldviews and various different kinds of things Doctrine is important, but it's not an end in itself. There is to be, in the Christian life, this experience of the chair of faith. You and I are to have this experience in our Christian lives where where our living, our life, is experiencing the reality of the unseen. I'm not saying necessarily that you wake up in the morning and an angel is standing at the foot of your bed, you know, with your coffee made already for you, you know. So, you know, but Lord, that might be an idea, you know. So, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that, that that kind of experience is going to happen. But... When you and I engage in the battle of the Christian life and we position ourselves in that chair of faith and we engage the sinner on the street and we are confronted by that worldview, 
you and I will see as we're stepping out into that chair of faith that God will be right alongside us in those times. There should be an experience, an experiential reality, moment by moment, of what real Christianity is about. The reality of the Christian that that Christianity, this is where Christianity is different to other religious persuasions, is that Christianity does not divorce away an intellectual side to it. There is, there is a vast body of intellectual works within the Christian realm. And there, there are vast bodies of intellectual thought that has stemmed from Christianity. It's contrast to the religious experiences of the East and, the, and, and Eastern mysticism. You know, the Christian, to have a spiritual experience doesn't need a dark room. It doesn't need to have a prayer labyrinth. Everybody know what I'm talking about, the prayer labyrinth? You know, this is something that was adopted in the last 10 years in Christianity, that these uh, deep prayer movements where you have candles and you do certain Christian meditations and repeat certain Christian mantras over and over and over until you have spiritual feelings and spiritual experiences and you'll move through through this labyrinthian experience getting deeper and deeper into a spiritual experience. I see Jojo down there looking at me like, you know, you know, is very disturbing because it's a counterfeit spirituality. And for you and I to experience real Christianity, we don't need a dark room or, or a labyrinth uh, prayer vigil. We don't need to be under the influence of a, of a hallucinating drug. We don't need to go into, you know, look, look at, if you, if you go back to the 80s and have a look at the uh, orange people, you know, um, you can look at that. One of the big things in the orange people movement was the music, repetition song, and the physical involvement of jumping up and down for hour upon uh, hour and then having this spiritual experience overwhelm you and there were many people who there in the midst of this demonic encounter speaking in tongues and experiencing these kinds of false spiritualities that were taking place. Why? Through an emptying of their mind and through a process of exhaustion as well, bringing them to a place where they are open to a counterfeit experience. And if you look at some of the modern musical sides of of the Christian realm, and this is one of the issues with the Bethel uh, rubbish that goes on aside from the vast volumes of false doctrine that they've released, is this experience where people are singing for an hour, two hours and and jumping up and down and worshipping God and then having these counterfeit spiritual experiences. Why? Because in the name of Jesus, they've opened themselves up to false spiritual influence. You don't need to contrive something. You don't need to be listening to a certain kind of music. We can know the reality of the supernatural here and now. 
If you've engaged in evangelism, at some point you've experienced that. You know that at some point God has, as you've been involved in an evangelistic encounter, God has given you clarity about the situation or given you words to say in that situation and and that person's heart has been touched by that. And it's an engagement of that which is uh, uh, supernatural into your life. There's content in this. It's not a, a vacuum of lucid thought, you know. It's not a vacuum of, of intellectualism like where you just get rid of everything and, and say, why do you believe in Jesus? I just do. You know, like, like you believe ice cream is sweet. Why is ice cream sweet? Because it is. <laughs> you know, what's the difference? If there is no reasoning behind the gospel, it's not really the gospel. Paul says we're, we're, we are persuading people with this message. We're persuading them. Why are we persuading them? Because it's rigorous. The gospel is rigorous. It can be tested. It has strength to it. It's got vitality to it. It also happens to be the living word of God, a life-giving message. But it's rigorous. To And with it, we can challenge people. And oh, we forget that so often. This is how we may exhibit the reality of the supernatural life. To a generation which is lost. The how of Christian living is the power of the crucified Christ, resurrected and living in you. Did you, did you hear that? That's the how of the Christian life. The power of the crucified, resurrected Christ. Alive in you. I can't remember who it was. Maybe Warren Wearsby um, in his commentary on the book of Acts. But he said something to the effect that the book of Acts is about the power of the Holy Spirit. In the evangelization of the world through the church. I just love that, you know, because we look at the book of Acts like this, just this document of record of what the church did. But Wearsby notes that the power of the Holy Spirit was at work because so many times the Spirit fell upon people, the Spirit moved upon people, or the Spirit forbade them from entering places or urged them to go to other places or gave them a a vision of some sort. All these kinds of things that the Holy Spirit of God indwelling in their lives was the agency for the crucified, resurrected Saviour. That, beloved, is a supernatural experience. And it hasn't, there's no amen on the end of the book of Acts. It stops and the expectation is that as the epistles showed uh, showed forth, that the church would continue to move on in the power of the Holy Spirit. So doctrine's not an end to itself. Christianity is experiential. Think back to when you were converted. 
That was an experience. As much as there may have been an intellectual engagement and a reasoning of the gospel or or however the approach was. Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis's book, a very intellectual approach, but he starts knocking down and pulling away the rug from underneath the intellectual's feet as he shows that all of their philosophies are countered through the gospel. Countered through the gospel, not countered. Christianity is not intellectual suicide. Christians can experience freedom from the bonds of sin in this life. That statement is not perfection. It's not the same thing. And we are going to see how this is by faith in the power of the crucified risen Christ through the agency of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is going to come up starting next week as we go into the next stage of these messages. Amen. The Lord's work done in the Lord's way will never fail to have the Lord's provision. Has anyone looked at Hudson Taylor this week? Had a bit of a look? Tell you. Fantastic. Those biographies, Hudson Taylor and and then um, uh, the Scottish fella out of um, Chambers, but the one who went into China. Um, uh, but I do fret myself, Jenny. Um, Chariots of Fire. Eric, Eric Liddell. Yeah, Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell. Um, you know. These people had a huge influence, and Eric Liddell, his influence was actually through serving people in a Chinese prison camp. That was his big area of influence. And, you know, when we lived in Macau, we got to meet a lady there who had been one of his Sunday school students as a child in one of those prison camps. Mm. So. And that influence had stayed with her through her whole life. She was a bitter and angry person, but she could not discount the influence that he had in her life. Phenomenal. So that is living in the chair of faith. You know, I would really encourage you to get it in the biography of Eric Little. It's, it is unreal, except it's real. So praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. And we praise you, Lord God. We thank you so much for the reality of the living Saviour, his death, his resurrection, and his promise to the disciples that he must die and ascend to heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord God, that you have sent your Holy Spirit to indwell each believer. Praise you for this. Help us, Lord God, to live within the reality of that experience, Lord, and to trust you in each twist and turn of this Christian life, Lord God, to thank you in all things. Father, we praise you and we thank you this morning that you are not far from us at all times. 
In Christ's mighty name, amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.